Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When I uh, finally wrote my first novel and it was finally published, one of the things I was really looking forward to was doing interviews about it because it's kind of flattering to have people ask you a bunch of questions about your life's work because you're the center of attention, that sort of thing. You get the idea. I was really looking forward to this until it happened. And I realized, a little twist, people often don't ask you the questions you want to answer. In fact, oftentimes they ask you really silly questions that you get tired of having to answer over and over again. And that's what happened to me. And the question I hated the most was this one. Um, If they were making a movie out of your book, who would you cast as the main character? I cannot tell you how many interviewers are, are fascinated by that question and expect you to be fascinated by it as well. But I hated that question, um, partly because I'd written a book, not a movie, uh, partly because if you talk about it being made into a movie, you kinda, it feels like you're jinxing it and maybe your chances are diminished. But also because all my favorite actors are dead. <laughs> Like, everybody that I would cast is dead. And and it felt like, I mean, I understand technology being what it is, we will soon be able to cast dead actors in movies. But but this was a few years ago, and we weren't there yet. And so it really felt like I was jinxing it by casting all these people who couldn't possibly be in the film. Well, I want to ask you to sort of put your casting director hat on for a moment. To understand a character, you have to understand what that character wants. So let's say you've got to cast a role, and, and the, the, the desire of this character, this, this character is a person, what they want is to be holy. What they want is to be pure. This is their deep-down motivation. How would you, as a casting director, choose the actor to portray the holy, pure person in the film? And now we have another role to cast, different role, This one is a person whose deep-down desire, the thing that they want more than anything, is to be loving. They just want to be loving. How would you cast that role? Now, you're familiar enough with, with movies to know that the same actor would not be cast in those two roles by any Hollywood casting director that I'm aware of. And most of us, maybe, would look for different traits as well. When you think about that desire to be holy and pure above all else, there's something, um, well, I mean, like sort of single-minded, strong-willed about that, maybe a little inflexible about that, uh, maybe stern or strict sometimes. When you think about a person whose desire is to be loving, you think of a person who's really easygoing, who's really forgiving, who, who, who lets things go, like lets you off the hook, that sort of thing. So our idea even in the church of what it would be to aspire to holiness versus what it would be to aspire to lovingness, there can be a gap between those two. But I want you to ask this question as we look at our text. Is there a gap between the two in the mind of Peter? As Peter talks, does he see a distance between those two motivations? We're looking at the very end of Peter chapter 1. The text that you have in your order of worship, this is verses 22 through 25. 
And Peter writes these words. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter's just got finished telling us in, in the earlier paragraph that we looked at last time, be ye holy as I am holy. We're called to holiness. Now he talks about a purification that has taken place through obedience to the truth. And that purification, that obedience, that holiness leads him to command us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the duty. This is what we must do. If last time we saw a lot of uh, advice on how we ought to relate to God, now we're being told how we ought to relate to one another. And it's pretty simple. It's love. It's love. Your calling is to love one another earnestly. As human beings, men and women, we were made for love, made to love. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. Paul writes, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. I've said before that the Christian life is lived in hope. And yet now we see love is greater than hope. Why is love the greatest of these? Why is love the greatest? Here's what I think. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. But faith ends, and hope ends. Now, it might sound depressing to say, oh, hope ends. But hope ends when it's fulfilled. Like, faith ends when you no longer need faith because you're in the presence of God. You no longer have to hope in him because he's here. You're there with him. Your faith is fulfilled. Your hopes are fulfilled. And all that's left to do is to love him, as you were called to do. That's why love is the greatest. Because love never ends. And when we love one another, as we're called to do, we do something now that reflects on what we will do for eternity. We get a taste of the future. In the text that we looked at last time, verse 21 concluded with these words, so that your faith and hope are in God. And now, in the next verse, he takes up the theme of love. Faith and hope, and now love. Love is a participation in our future. We're told that we can serve God by serving one another. If you serve a person made in the image of God, you are serving God through that person. And if that's true, then isn't it also the case that when we love one another, we love God through one another. The way that we show our love for him is by showing love 
toward one another. This is a thing we're given to do now. A thing that we can do immediately that is a fulfillment of our God-given purpose in eternity. And Christian life is about loving one another. It's as simple as that. So much has been written. You can go to the Christian bookstore and, and new volumes are released every week on the theme, How to Be a Better Christian. So much training is available. So many resources are available in equipping you to be a better Christian when the reality is the best answer to the question, how to be a better Christian, is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not love in the abstract, not a love for fellow man as long as you never have to confront your fellow man, but literally a love for one another, for the other people gathered together in this room. A love for these people, an earnest love. That's how to be a better Christian. The more you love the people around you in this room, the more earnestly you do it, the more self-sacrificially, the better Christian you become. That's your calling. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 8, we read these words. Peter said, though you have not seen him, you love him. If you remember, that was three sermons ago. In talking about that theme of love, I talked about how perhaps the most important thing in Christian discipleship is cultivating love. That if we want our children, for example, to grow up to be Christian disciples, what we should do is cultivate in them a love of Christ, a love of the good things Christ has, a love of Scripture, a love of worship. Right? Not that we should be strict and stern with them and make sure they always follow the rules, that sort of thing, but we should instill in them a love for these great gifts that they've been given. The more we cultivate love, the more we do discipleship well. Peter says this. I think in saying this, Peter is only repeating what he learned at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 13, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this mutual love, this earnest, pure love, is meant to be a hallmark of Christianity. It's meant to be what we're known by. Now, oftentimes, we seek to be known by other distinctives. We want people to know we're Christians by our confession of faith. We want people to know we are Christians by our good deeds. We want people to know we are Christian by all of the vices that we do not participate in. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying all of them, all of them, fall short of love. You know me well enough, I hope, to know that I hold the confession of faith in high regard. So I'm not belittling it when I say that it is important not only to confess the faith, but to live it in love. Orthodoxy is good, but not dead orthodoxy. That's a horrible hypocrisy. Love one another. Be known 
by your love. The beauty of this is that if we find the way to love and cultivate love, then we no longer have to keep track of a list of rules in our head and concern ourselves with where we are in terms of measuring up. If we know that we have to love and we, we study to love, then a lot of things take care of themselves. Paul says in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. When I think about trying to fulfill the law, that seems like a staggering thing to do. I mean, it's not... It's hard to fulfill all the law, but I would say, like, it's even hard to just make a list of what the law is that needs to be fulfilled. Like, I'm not sure I know anyone who could articulate what all the rules actually are in the Old Testament with any degree of certainty. So just knowing, just knowing is difficult. Keeping it is another thing entirely, and yet... Paul says, echoing Christ, but also echoing the Old Testament, that to love is a fulfillment of the law. If you want to fulfill the law, if you want to fulfill your obligations, love one another. That's your duty. Owe no one anything except to love each other. I love that. Owe no one anything. Like Don't, don't be in debt to anyone. Like don't uh, take advantage of other people. Except this, owe them love. Owe them love. We don't think of love that way. Kind of like we don't think of respect that way. Um, a lot of times we say things like, uh, you have to earn my respect. You have to earn my respect. Well, the reality is no one has to earn your respect. No one has to earn your love. As a person made in God's image, you're deserving of your respect. Deserving of your love. Even if they haven't earned it. Even if they've done plenty to, to, to demonstrate that they don't deserve it. For the sake of Christ, we owe it. It's an obligation of love. Which raises some difficulties because I know um, love doesn't work that way. It's kind of hard um, parents of... of of brothers can probably relate to this. Um, brothers fight, and you want to pull them apart and say, you should love each other. You give them that command to love each other. And of course, then they stop fighting, and they start loving each other. Just like that. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. I'm not sure love is a command you can obey. Right? When we start telling people, okay, you've got to love this person. Uh, that's kind of hard to know how to do. It's sort of like in school, you know, for the best of intentions, teacher, you know, tries to make everybody be friends. Right? You don't want anyone to be excluded. You want everyone to be friends. And, and that's hard to do. It's, actually, it's easy to say, everyone be friends. It's really hard, though, to make that a reality. Now, here, I think we've got something even harder. Because... Peter's talking about brotherly love. He's talking about brotherly love. And he's saying that all of you, everyone in this room, should, should have a brotherly, sisterly, sibling-like affection for one another. Now, for some of you, that's not hard because you actually are siblings. But 
a lot of us are not related to each other. It's hard to have brotherly love for people that, that you don't have any connection to. Or for people who are just, these are just the random people who showed up at church. And I didn't grow up with these people. We don't have, you know, I, our parents aren't related, that sort of thing. So how do you have a bond of brotherly love if you don't have a bond of brotherhood? Well, take a look at Peter's words. And Peter, at the very beginning of our text, he talks in an interesting way. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So the love is at the end of that chain of words. But along the way is a purification of your soul. And it's taken place because of your obedience to the truth. So he's talking about a change here. That your obedience to the truth, the truth of the gospel, your reaction to the gospel, you've accepted the claims of Christ, that has resulted in a purification of the soul. A sanctification of the soul, if you will. Right? When we talk about being holy, to be holy, to be sanctified, is to be purified and set apart for a special use. So a vessel made for ordinary use can be set aside, purified, and becomes holy. Right? It becomes holy, and the same thing happens metaphorically to us. As we are confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hear that truth we obey that truth. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Our souls are purified. And another word for that process is the new birth. Very early in our chapter, this was in uh, verse 3, Peter said, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then if you look in our text this morning, you'll see it here. Uh, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. You have been born again. What he's saying is really simple. You do have a family tie with one another. You aren't just the random people who happen to show up to church. You have a bond of birth with the people you're gathered here to worship with. A bond of spiritual birth. You have been born again to a living hope. And everyone who has been born again to that living hope is your brother and sister. And it is a bond that is stronger, stronger than the family bonds we hold so dearly. Have you ever wondered, when you read the Gospels, I mean, Jesus says difficult things. He says things that are hard to understand. But probably the, the thing that he is dismissive of, that is hardest to understand, is the way Jesus talks about family. If Jesus was a Christian pastor of today, he would never say some of the things that he says. Right? Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to hate your father and mother, your wife your children, and follow me. You have to be willing to give up on family and follow me. That's the cost of discipleship. 
Jesus talks that way. We don't talk that way. We don't talk that way. Christian churches don't talk that way. Right? We, if anything, uh, when we're highlighting our values, family's right up there. Right? Family, family. We're a family church, which is true, but not in the way that we often mean. If you want to understand why Jesus speaks this way, it's not because Jesus doesn't understand the bonds of family. It's not because Jesus doesn't value them. It's that he sees something higher that he's pointing to. And it's the bonds of the spiritual birth. Physical birth, yeah, that's wonderful. But the spiritual birth is even higher. The bonds of natural family we understand. Right? What wouldn't you do for your brother? What wouldn't you do for your sister? What wouldn't you sacrifice for your children? That comes naturally to us. And yet we're being told that we are part of a spiritual family and those bonds are even more real, even more real than those of the physical. I won't camp out on that. But you're born again. You're born again. Not of perishable seed, Peter says, but imperishable. Contrasting physical birth and spiritual birth. Now already, last time we saw a similar contrast. This is uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So in the first case, the perishable things are silver and gold. The imperishable is the blood of Christ. Now notice the comparison. So he's not saying perishable things like wood, hay, or stubble. Right? Silver and gold are not trash. Right? They're not worthless. According to the radio, they've never been worth nothing. And we should stockpile them. And yet, Peter says they're perishable things. That the ransom paid with silver and gold is nothing compared to the ransom that is paid in the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. So you see the comparison. To, to really magnify the one thing, you have to point out the perishability of something that is valuable, not something that's worthless. And that's what he does here. It's not that physical birth is worthless. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. But spiritual birth is of such greater value. So Peter says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The first birth, physical birth, that was from perishable seed, born of the flesh. All of us have this in common. All of us had moms. We were all born. We all grew up, uh, at least physically. Some of us have lagged behind mentally and emotionally a little bit. But uh, we all have this in common as human beings. As believers, we have something else in common. Having been born again of an imperishable seed. An imperishable seed. Now, Some commentators, when they look at this, associate the seed with the word. But look at the, the wording. It says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable 
through the living and abiding Word of God. So the Word is instrumental. It is through the Word that this takes place. But the seed itself is that new spiritual birth, that regeneration. It's uh, similar to the redeeming blood of Christ that Peter has already alluded to. And the Word is the instrument. The Word is, uh, in good Presbyterian language, it is the means of grace. The means of grace. It's the answer to the question, how were you born again? Through the living and abiding Word of God. There are a lot of things we talk about as means of grace, but primarily when you use that term, we're referring to the Word, sacraments, and prayer. Word, sacraments, and prayer. So, the Word, the Bible, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and of course, prayer. And we call these means of grace, ordinary means of grace, which means this. These are the means by which God ordinarily brings people to faith and strengthens them in faith. So ordinarily, the way that a person is born again is by hearing the Word of God preached. They hear the Gospel preached, maybe from a pulpit, maybe from a friend, maybe by reading it themselves. The uh, Shorter Catechism, this is question 89, how is the Word made effectual to salvation, says this, the Spirit of God makes the reading but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It's not that God can't save people any other way or strengthen them any other way. Of course, he can use other means. Of course, he can use no means at all. But ordinarily, this is the way he works. And it's the reason why, as Christians, we, have, uh, we place a high value on the ministry of word and sacrament, and on prayer, because these are things God uses to bring us to him and to strengthen us. So the word of God is the means by which we come to be born again into his family. Peter, once he's made this point, gives us a quote from Isaiah. This is the first time he does this in the book, quoting Isaiah. He's going to do it five more times before we get to the end. Isaiah is going to be one of those people for Peter, just like he is for other New Testament authors, who gets quoted a lot. So you hear the words that he quotes from Isaiah, and uh, they're kind of, kind of morbid, kind of depressing. He quotes these words, All flesh is like grass. And all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We we're talking about Valentine's Day earlier. That would make a lovely poem for Valentine's Day. Wow. All flesh is like grass. You know what happens to grass? It gets mowed. Well, not if it's in my yard, but in most people's yards, it gets mowed disappears. Its glory, like at its best, the glory of the flowers, that fades away. That fades away. Again, the contrast is not between something that's worthless and something that's valuable. He's not saying, man, grass is rotten. I wish we had more concrete and less grass. 
sure don't like flowers. No. The grass is beautiful and the flowers are the height of that beauty. The point isn't that they have no value. The point is that they fade away, that they are impermanent. These beauties, these beautiful, wonderful things last for a season and then they're gone. And all of the hope that we placed in them, all of the inspiration that we drew from them, that's gone. That's gone. I mean, this is a recurring theme in love poetry. Uh, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Uh, Many a poet has tried to woo his lady by assuring her that her beauty will fade unless he's able to write poems about it. And then it will live forever. Right? We know this. We know that there's something impermanent to physical beauty. We're being reminded of this. And yet, this beauty that fades, these glories that fade, these are the beauties, these are the glories that fill our eyes and fill our hearts. These are the things that inspire us, the things that drive us to love flowers. These are the means by which we express our love as well. All of it perishable. All of it impermanent. None of it lasts. The contrast is to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord is a flower that never fades. It is a beauty that is never extinguished. A beauty that never declines. Never ages. It is imperishable. God's word does not fade, does not fall, it does not wither away, it lasts forever. And those who were born again into that living hope last forever. And their hopes are fixed on something that never passes away. Peter doesn't quote Isaiah to get us to, to neglect nature. Rather, he wants us to see the beauty of the good news that was preached to you. He wants you to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached to you is more beautiful than any beauty you've beheld with your eyes. The gospel has an imperishable beauty. We were made to love God and to love one another, but because of sin, we don't do that. We were born of perishable seed. And because of that, our eyes are fixed on perishable beauties. But when Christ looks on us with his sincere, earnest love that comes from the purest of pure hearts through the gospel, we're born again to a living hope so that we can love one another as we love him the way that we were meant to do. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.